Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and pretty okay archer. When have you arched? <laughs> well, I used to I used to do it at this summer camp, like the camp that I went to with my dad with his friends camping, and then the actual camp that I went to in the summer that I worked at, both had archery like situations, and I was actually pretty good at it. But how do you know you're still good at it? I don't because I don't think I have arched in maybe time. Yeah, probably like uh, six years. I would say the last time I shot a bow and arrow was six years ago. I thought you were going to say way longer than that. No, because I went I went to um, a work retreat for a blog I was working on in Austin, Texas at a like a ranch thing. And my friend coincidentally from college worked there and he was the archery guy. And so he took me out to, like, do archery. What twists and turns your life has had. (laughs) Uh, I tried to name all 50 states the other day, and I only got, like, 40. Which ones did you miss? Half of them. No, okay, you missed, like, one-fifth of them. I forgot Texas, Gabby. Texas is the biggest one. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's a bunch in New England that are, like, you know. No, I know New England because I'm from New York. I don't know. It was just really bad. Anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. You went to a boarding school. They didn't teach you geography there? My my brain does not retain it. I feel bad because people from other countries, like, fully know so much about the U.S., and we, like, probably don't even know the name of the country someone listening to this is in. Oh, absolutely. Are we... No, I don't want to say. What? Are we... Are we dumb? Uh... I, I don't think that I am dumb. I think I have a poor memory and I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable. But I think that I have, like, uh, problem-solving <laughs> skills and uh, I have, like, oh good reading God. comprehension and yeah. I ha- can argue and form opinions, but I Emotional don't have Emotional intelligence. Yeah. yeah I have yeah, no yeah. knowledge. I, well, you know what? It's good to start there because then you can read and, like, learn more things. And then immediately forget them. <laughs> We've got a great episode for you guys this week. <laughs> it's like, so stay tuned because we're two uneducated bimbos. <laughs> okay, this week we're asking Angela Chen some tough questions about her book, Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. I read the book and it was so good and I'm so excited to talk to Angela. And later we're going to be discussing how to reframe your thoughts and why this simple thing can change your life. I love when we get self-helpy. Uh, me too. It's my new passion. <laughs> but first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. Lena, Toronto. I like when they put their, their pronouns in the bio. No, that's super helpful. And we I know. Everyone, everyone, please do that. And also your street address and social security number. <laughs> Grandma's made a name. <laughs> Okay, so Lena's email is about boundaries in the workplace. How to be nice, but not make friends. 
So the email reads, I keep having this problem at places I work where when I start working there, I'm nice and friendly to people. And then it leads people to think I want to hang out outside of work, which I most definitely do not. I love this person. I just don't know how to establish boundaries with these people without coming off as rude. Uh, Especially, I don't know how to say no when things like, oh, we're going for pizza sometime. Recently, I had a coworker who just won't shut up and talks to me all the time while I'm trying to work. It's very annoying, but I don't know how to say leave me alone politely. The other day, he asked for my Facebook, and I figured, sure, add me on Facebook. I'm never there. And he did so immediately after his shift and then sent me his phone number in a message. He's a nice guy, and I don't feel like there's any predatoriness to this, but I'm so uncomfortable. Maybe I'm just overreacting, or maybe not. You tell me. Maybe he's just an alien. <laughs> this isn't the first time something like this has happened to me in a workplace, and I just don't know what to do. Anyway, love your show so much. Been a fan since the beginning of the YouTube channel. You two have helped me through navigating my body image issues and mental health, and I'm super thankful. You always make me laugh while making me think. Cute. It is nice to read the positives. Isn't it? I told you. I've changed lives. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm not friendly. No, let me back up. Yes, you are. I am, but I am very uncomfortable with this kind of thing, too. Like, I don't know how much of hanging out outside of work is work in a sense because you you kind of have to be on guard a little bit in a way you're not with your regular friends um you kind of have to be careful what you say I remember when we worked at BuzzFeed I always felt that like being asked to hang out was a trap because I thought people were trying to get gossip or trying to get information about how I feel about certain bosses or certain things. And I felt like I couldn't really speak freely or like behave freely because it would come back to work or someone would be like, oh, I heard this or whatever. Um, It's just I just find it a little messy to be like hanging out with a, you dated a socially your co-worker at BuzzFeed. I know and that was a bad <laughs> idea I mean that was a bad idea because I just felt like it became so enmeshed everything became so enmeshed and especially like it, it's kind of a trick to get you to like think of the company as your family or your friends and like not leave because it's like well why would I leave where my boyfriend is why would I leave where my best friend is but I don't know Cheyenne works in restaurants and she's friends with the people she works with but that also got messy because she had an entanglement with someone who worked there and it was like hard to go into work and see that person because of stuff that had happened socially so like Well, I think everybody's boundaries and preferences are different. I would advise against romantic relationships. Yeah. Because I think that that, like you said, can often cause issues. But yeah, I mean, this question like blew me away because I truly don't know. Um, It is so uncomfortable for me to think about setting a clear boundary being like, no, no, thank you. I don't hang out with people outside of work. But maybe that is the answer. Maybe that's the way for people not to take it personally. Yeah, but then it sucks because they'll be like, oh, Lena's not friendly. Like, we don't want her to work here because she doesn't, she's not friendly. But to me, what sucks is like, when I'm done with work, I go home. Mm -hmm. I don't want to extend the workday. I don't want to like have to go out and, and like endear myself to people at a bar so that I can get more projects or whatever. Like, there's such a fine line where like... If you're friendly with these people and you put in like uh, three more hours at the end of Friday when you don't want to, you just want to go home. It's like that could get you more things at work, but it's so insidious. So that's another part of it, right? Like I think there's oftentimes like work sanctioned social events. So like 
before COVID, like Jake's company had a lot of those where it would be Mm -hmm. like with his pod, there'd be like a night out or there'd be this social event and it was organized by the company. And I think when it's organized by the company, there is some expectation that you should at least go show your face. Um, And that's like a good hard and fast rule. But then it's much more dubious when it's more just like social hangouts initiated by coworkers that has nothing to do with the bigger company. And I think that with that stuff, it's, it's valid to have those boundaries. I mean, again, I don't know if like you need to explicitly state it or if it's more like, oh, thank you so much. But like, you know, I work all day and like the nights are the only time I'm able to see my partner. So yeah, we kind of have an agreement that like the nights are for us. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And if you don't have a partner saying like my family or my friends and, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think also with this particular dude, uh, I think you can say, hey, I, I, my work is kind of suffering because we talk a lot. Is it possible for you to not talk to me during the day while I'm working? Because it's like I have I'm just very distracted. Yeah, Which I think you if can, you frame it as your issue. Your so if problem, you're like, yeah. I'm, like, I'm realizing that I'm getting, like, so distracted at work and I have a real problem concentrating. So is it possible that we just, like, catch up on stuff during lunch? Yeah. Um, because, like, during the work hours, I really need to, like, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm slipping and I really need to, like, focus. I just hate this. I hate this idea that work has become, like, you have to talk to people. I hate that it's, like... <laughs> I hate it. I hate that there's like a company culture and you got to like join the book club of your fucking company and you got to join the softball team and whatever the like work is work. Like when did we start being like, no, work is a family like, oh, leave me alone. Just let me like do my documents. Yeah, I mean, work is not your family. Um, I think it is sometimes really wonderful to develop friendships at work. I think a lot of people do make meaningful relationships and friendships out of that. But again, it all comes down to like personal preference. I also don't want to like say stop being friendly and stop being nice because you absolutely should be friendly and nice to your coworkers. But unless they have social skills problems um, and have a hard time interpreting social cues, if you say no that first four times, hopefully they'll get it and and that will be the end of it. <laughs> but uh, but then they'll be like, you're a bitch. Then it comes down to people pleasing, mm-hmm. right? So are you okay knowing that the only thing that you have done is not want to hang out with someone socially outside of work, but every single day you still treat them with respect, you're still friendly, you're still nice, you're still helpful. If they, if they look at that entire situation and they choose to, with that evidence to decide that you're a bitch, that's on them. That's not on you. Yeah. Setting boundaries is very hard because people take them so personally and like so seriously. Um, And so, I mean, this person's reaction could be poor, but I think you just have to be like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, sorry. Um, People, I have found that a lot of times when I set up boundaries, people are like, you're a bitch. But- they say because, that to your face? Kind of. Well, not really. But because, like, I think, like, especially as a woman and with, like, male coworkers, I think it's, like, I, I, I know you're saying it's not predatory and maybe it's not predatory, but it is an assumption, I think, that, well, this woman will be nice to me. This woman will, will like, you know, give me her phone number and kowtow and kind of like people please and be like yeah sure and like I don't think he's expecting you to go I don't really want to because 
I think you're talking about the person who gave the number over Facebook. Yeah, like I think I think men don't really understand that no is a complete sentence. But that's a difficult situation because all he did was share his phone number. He wasn't then asking for a, a hangout. Maybe he's you know talking I, to her all the time. He's like, I think totally. But I'm just saying that, like, it's. I, I think yeah. that there's a scenario where he sends that DM with his phone number, and you go, "Great, thanks," and then that's it. And then, and then you like the thing you always have to do is is you you go to the the normal, like you set up the boundary, mm-hmm. you you act normally. Mm-hmm. And then you see how that person reacts. Mm-hmm. And if they then push past what is normal boundaries, then you have to address it. But hopefully with like 80% of people, if you set up that boundary, that will be the end of it. So the question is really, what do you do with that 20% of people who don't? <laughs> yeah. So like, what if this guy then starts texting you? Then you say, I don't, or you just don't reply. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think that you share your phone number with him. Like, I think you can, like, give it a thumbs up on Facebook Messenger. Yeah, and that's it. But, you know, it's so hard because it's hard to understand where people's motivations are coming from. Right. So for some people, I don't know what kind of work she has, but she did mention, like, shifts. Sometimes these people do need each other's numbers because, like, I need my shift covered. Mm-hmm. Like, where you actually just, like, do need to communicate about work stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my advice is to like not assume people's intentions and not assume people's motivations until they reveal themselves and then you act appropriately but if you have an uncomfortable feeling then trust that totally but she said she didn't well she said she's uncomfortable it's not predatory in the sense that he's trying to like come come for her in a like a romantic or sexual way but she felt uncomfortable because she's like i don't want to deal to be with friends. This. Yeah. I don't want to be friends. Like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm not like, I'm not going to be like talking to you about my boyfriend or whatever. Like, I don't know. I know that you're saying that 80% of people would be fine. But like, I have found in my life, like when I do set up boundaries, it is, it has come across that people say that I'm cold. But so then what, what is the problem with that? Well, I wonder if I've missed out on if they haven't hired me for things or missed out on like opportunities because I don't allow people to blow past my boundaries. Yes. If in a few years, this coworker who's in your position now is suddenly in a a boss position. You know what I mean? Right. That's what's so complicated. But so that's what you have to do. You have to like, I think that feeling uncomfortable, feeling unsafe, feeling predatory or like things have crossed boundaries is very different than like. The company culture is that you're expected to get end of work drinks for an hour on Friday. Like, sometimes you just have to do that and just, like, assume that that is a part of your job. And, like, the difference is when people are crossing those boundaries and you are feeling unsafe, it is inappropriate. And then I think you have every right to put up those boundaries. Mm -hmm. The history of just, like, people getting passed over because they're not willing to be inappropriate with coworkers is just, like, unfortunately... A reality of the workplace that has existed I, always. I hate it so much. Like, I I feel for you, Lena, because I really don't understand. Like, I, leave me alone. Like, I've never, I don't understand why. I feel like maybe it's because a lot of people don't have anything outside of work. So mm-hmm. they're like, this is where I meet new people. This is totally. the hangout. I'm going to start the work happy hour. Yeah, like in the same way that you don't like it, some people do like it, and that's fine. Yeah. It's just like meeting in that middle ground and not having certain boundaries be, you know, stepped over. 
Yeah, and if you're good at your job, I guess it won't really matter that much. But I do think you can, yeah, I think, like, the thumbs up is your friend. Yeah. I think you can just, like, not share information that you don't need to share. Mm -hmm. And don't feel pressured to. Mm -hmm. Like, don't feel like, you know, if somebody is asking about your dating life, you can just be like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, people, I don't know. Like, I I do that, but, you know, it's hard because I think people also mistake that for not being nice. So, like, they'll be like, oh, Gabby's not nice because she said no. Or she said, I don't want to talk about it. I think that there are plenty of people that are lovely and nice and interact with on a daily basis and you don't know anything about their personal lives. Yeah. Like, I think that it's definitely a doable thing. You know, if you're saying, please, thank you, Mm -hmm. if you're being nice, if you're making sure you're responding to everybody's email right away, if you're helping Mm -hmm. each other out with projects, like, that's all you can do, man. Like, if they're going to be pissed that you're not telling them your deepest secrets, that's on them. That's not on you. Yeah, that's true. So I think that you can absolutely come off as warm and friendly without revealing your life or interacting outside of work outside of like organized work events bring donuts yeah like there's other you know like i really i don't think it's as black and white as we think it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you got to just kind of figure out what works for you and that said there will be people who cross those boundaries there will be people who act inappropriately mm-hmm. and hopefully that's where hr comes in uh <sighs> if your company has an effective hr but yeah the guy who goes to the new girl and talks to her all the time and gets and shares his phone number, I don't trust that guy. No, I don't either. I don't think he's doing that to men. But I don't think that that means you need to, like, assume that you're a cold bitch because you don't want to engage with that. Totally. You are being very reasonable. And, yeah. And that's it. That's all you can that's do. That's it. You have, to, you have to look at it big picture objectively, how your behavior is versus their behavior. And if, yeah. you're in the, if you're in the right, you're in the right. And then things fall where they will. But you know that you've done nothing wrong. Yes, totally. Hopefully that helped. If, if you want to submit your international question or give us your phone number, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Angela Chen. Stick around. Just between us. Hey. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, Sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max.
Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week, we have the author of Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, Angela Chen. Welcome, Angela. Hello. So basically, we had someone on the show who was a sex therapist, and our listeners wrote in and they were like, we would love for you to do an episode about asexuality, because I think that the original interview was very focused on allosexual people. So thank you for coming on. So I read your book, and it was incredible. I like screenshotted so many parts. Um, But can you first, can you talk about uh, like what asexuality is and your journey towards uh, identifying with that label? Yeah, absolutely. So asexuality is really complicated to explain properly. The official definition is someone who's asexual is a person who doesn't experience sexual attraction. And when you think about it, you're like, okay, that, that makes sense. But then you think like, what exactly is sexual attraction? So I actually came across the word asexual when I was maybe 14 years old. And I was like, oh, good. Um, interesting thing about the world, interesting thing about other people. But it never, ever occurred to me that I would be asexual. Because I thought asexual, I thought not experiencing sexual attraction meant that you hated sex. So you were bothered by sex. And all of the coverage of aces, it was kind of the same story. It was always like, oh, from a young age, I knew I was different. I hated the idea that one day I would want to have sex with people. Um, I knew I wasn't like other people, but I had to find this community. And that just wasn't the case for me at all. You know, I had no problem, you know, talking about sex or um, listening to raunchy lyrics. As a teenager, I looked forward to one day having sex. So it was like, how could I be asexual? 
And basically the short answer is it's possible to not experience sexual attraction and not be bothered by sex. So I actually kind of hate food metaphors, but they're really convenient. So I'm going to use one anyway. Basically, for most people, there's food that you're repulsed by, like tuna or whatever. And there's food you love, like ice cream. And there are these foods in the middle. And the example I use is crackers, because that's the most kind of bland thing I can think of, where you don't love them, you're pretty indifferent to them, you're not repulsed by them, but if, you know, you're with your best friend and it's kind of a ritual and it's something you do together, then you just kind of grow to like it, even if you don't have this deep, you know, attraction to crackers. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can you explain a little bit, like, it was so interesting, the metaphor of, like, asexual people being able to have sex and and even masturbate, but, like, there's something like in terms of sexual attraction that is missing that I think myself as an allosexual like had never even questioned in myself. Yeah, and I think it's because we really kind of mix up sex drive or libido and sexual attraction. So sex drive, it's basically being sexually frustrated. It's, it's just being horny, right? And you want to have an orgasm. But sexual attraction is that feeling towards someone or it's caused by someone. So sexual attraction is like an orientation. You know, you're, you don't feel sexually attracted to anyone. But sex drive, that's not tied to orientation. So you can be gay and have a low sex drive. You can be straight and have, you know, a high sex drive. You can be asexual and you can have no sex drive at all. So you don't feel sexual attraction and you don't feel any need to, you know, orgasm or masturbate. Or you can be asexual and still get horny, but it's just like this feeling in your body, you know, like, oh, like I want to have an orgasm, but it's not, you don't want to have anyone be involved. It's not provoked by anyone. And that's this really subtle nuance that I think a lot of people don't get. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about other like misconceptions about asexuality in general? Yeah, absolutely. So asexuality is about um, attraction. So it's not about behavior. So you can be asexual and still have even and still have sex. That doesn't mean you're celibate. Um, as I like to say, a lot of people have sex with people they're not attracted, sexually attracted to anyway. That's definitely not an ace thing. It doesn't mean <laughs> that it's true. You know, I think like. So many of my friends and I have talked about this. Definitely, I feel strongly about it. Um, also, asexuality is not about um, not wanting relationships. That's actually separate. So um, there's something called aromanticism, which is when you're not romantically attracted to other people. But plenty of ace people, you can be asexual and still um, attracted to the same gender, the opposite gender, or attracted to all genders. Um, that's another one. I think um, one of when the, you say attracted, do you mean you mean romantically attracted? Yeah, I mean romantically attracted. Sexually attracted. Romantically attracted. So you cannot be sexually attracted to anyone, but you can still be romantically attracted to people of the same or opposite gender. One thing that people always talk about, this is getting to the more like nuances of asexuality. People are always like, oh, like, are you sure it's not just the patriarchy? <laughs> you know, are you really asexual, or do you have, you know? Um, emotional repression or trauma and that's when it gets really tricky because I think part of being asexual is you're always you know other people are always asking you that and I think most aces I know are always asking ourselves that it's like are we actually ace or am I just shy or am I just awkward you know like am I just tricking myself and I think a lot of the times it can be true that you know the patriarchy is responsible for um you know making it harder for you to access your desires but that doesn't mean that asexuality doesn't exist you know for many people they Mm -hmm. are ace regardless of kind of these outside factors 
I always feel that way, too, as like a, a queer person where I think sometimes scientists or people try to nail down like, well, why? Why are you gay? Is there a gay gene? Is there? And it's like, you know what? I, it doesn't matter. Like, I am. So, like, we don't need to get to the bottom of it because it seems like the idea of getting to the bottom of it is like, oh, we can cure you. And it's like, I don't need to be cured. I don't want to be cured. Why are you so invested in whether or not someone has sex? You're weird. Leave it alone. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this really fine line to walk because I think that it's always good to, you know, explore and see what you like and, you know, be open. It's not a bad thing if you think you're ace and then you realize you're not ace, you know, that's that's totally fine too, mm-hmm. to all be fluid. But you shouldn't have to spend all your life like trying to see, you know, trying to prove to yourself that you're actually not ace. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Why should people be so invested in who you're attracted to or not? What was your journey to, to realizing that, that that was what you are? Well, like I said, I came across the definition when I was 14. I was like, great, how funny. And I just didn't think about it again for almost 10 years. And I always, you know, even in high school, I had really strong crushes and I liked thinking about relationships and I liked talking about sex. So there was just no sign, I think, that my friends and I were using language differently. Like when they would say, oh, he's so hot, I'd be like, yes, he has attractive facial structures. Like that's kind of what I, the level at which I was thinking, but I think what they were describing was like, Oh, when I look at him, I want to be naked with him. And that's just not the way that I was using the word in my mind. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, near the end of college, I um, started dating someone named Henry and because of various circumstances, he, um, he pushed for this five year long distance open relationship. And I just went, that shit. I mean, I can joke about it now, but at the time I was just so freaked out about it and so threatened and it really ruined the relationship and it made me behave in ways that were cruel. And for a long time, I really feel like I could not forgive myself for behaving that way. And I was just obsessed with, you know, why did I do that? Why was I so insecure? And I mean, I want to be clear, part of the reason is just that I was insecure and young, right? That has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. asexuality. But actually, a few years later, I remember talking to a friend about how I was so afraid of sexuality. Everyone was sexually attracted to everyone else. And then everyone's going to be miserable in their relationships because they were going to be sexually attracted to everyone else. And he was like, okay, but it's just attraction. It's just this physical thing. You know, you feel it, but it's not some overwhelming, horrible thing that ruined your life. You just learned to deal with it. And it was really like a light bulb had come on in my head because I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, to me, I'd never experienced sexual or physical attraction in that way. Like there were people that I found attractive on this aesthetic level, um, but it was not that sexual component. And so when other people talked about sexual attraction, I thought about my experience, which was really just romantic, obsessive love. And that is the kind of thing that's very threatening if everyone is feeling it all the time toward everyone else, you know? And so I realized that, you know, of course, again, immaturity played a huge role in this relationship, but another big part of it was because I had no personal experience of sexuality and I didn't even know that my experience of sexuality was different. And once I learned that, so much started clicking into place and I started exploring all of these ways of thinking about sexuality and desire. That's so interesting because, like, yeah, how can you know that what you're experiencing is different from other people? Yeah, it's like a philosophy question. You're not them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
And even within the asexuality descriptor, there's a lot of different preferences, right? Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah. So, you know, like anything, it's not a binary, right? So it's not like ace people and allo people. It's a spectrum. So gray ace or gray A is a phrase that people use a lot. And it's kind of a catch-all phrase. So it's like, you know, you only occasionally experience sexual attraction, or maybe you experience it, or you only experience it rarely. And then there's also this term demisexual, which I feel like everyone hates and makes fun of. And demisexual means that you can only develop sexual attraction after it's an emotional bond. But everyone is like, well, I too prefer sleeping with people that I like. And that's not, that's not what it is. It's not about preference. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you actually don't develop those feelings at all. Um, someone that I interviewed for the book um, put it really well. She was like, you know, I can go into a, m most people who are not demisexual, they can go into a bar and they can find someone sexually attractive. She can go into a bar, she can take home anyone she wants, she can, she can sleep with anyone she wants, but she just won't be able to feel sexually attracted to someone unless there's that emotional bond. It's interesting that people have such an aversion to that. Like, I, I think people are still really struggling with anything outside of uh, heterosexuality or monosexuality in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like people uh, are so against demisexual almost because it feels too normal. You know, like, it's like, why do we need all these mm. words for these things? So for me, it's almost like it's not outside. It's actually, to them, it's very common. And so they feel like we don't need the words for it. I personally think more words are better because if you, more words can just, you know, even teach you the right keywords to Google. So you can learn more about something. But that's just me. When I was reading the book, I was so interested in, like, I identifying sexually via negativa, like a lack of. Can you explain, like, how that kind of makes it more difficult? Yeah, absolutely. So just to back up a little bit of history, um, asexuality, the idea, the concept, you know, lack of sexual attraction was kind of created so it could go along with the other sexual orientations, right? You know, like if you're homosexual, you're sexually attracted to the same gender. If you're asexual, you're sexually attracted to no gender. Um, but the problem with that is that aces don't experience sexual attraction. So you're just kind of feeling your way around this like invisible hole in the ground where you're like, oh, I don't experience this. And they're like, what do you experience? And it's like, well, this thing that all of you are experiencing, but I don't know. So it really creates this weird kind of philosophical, linguistic conundrum, which is why when people try to explain asexuality, as I did right now, so much of it is about being like, oh, it's not being celibate. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. hating sex um, because it's so hard for us to really understand what sexual attraction is. But also I would say that I think it's so hard for everyone. Even if you experience it, I think people who are allo get sexual attraction confused with sexual um, with sex drive and libido, and they get it confused with emotional attraction and aesthetic attraction. Can you talk about emotional attraction, aesthetic attraction, or even like, I was also very fascinated by the talk of like platonic relationships and the heightening of romantic and sexual relationships, like in narratives or in our lives over that. Like, I really liked this quote that was like, in past relationships, I was like, do I actually want a romantic and sexual relationship or did I just have a really intense platonic love for someone and I want to have some sort of validation that I was significant in your life the way you are in mine? And I feel that a lot. Um, and I think I felt that a lot with um, men before I was like, 
uh, maybe you just don't want to fuck them. Maybe you just want to like, like you want to validate that you like each other. Yeah, right. It can be so hard to figure out like, what, what do I want? Do I want this specific thing? Or do I want what society tells me the specific thing is supposed to bring me or like the status that it attains? Um, so anyway, aesthetic attraction, the way I usually explain it is that it's like finding someone beautiful without that beauty being a sexual motivator. Maybe a better way to explain it, mm-hmm. so this is a little reductive, is like, if you're a straight woman, you might still have a type, you know, you might still find like certain, um, what was the example I used? You might say like, Bella Hadid is more beautiful than Gigi Hadid. You don't want to sleep with either of them, but one of them is just more aesthetically pleasing. Or sometimes I'm like, mm-hmm. when I see people, it's not like everyone looks the same to me, but beautiful people to me, it's like looking at a beautiful painting. There's no like sexual desire involved in looking at a beautiful mm-hmm. painting, you know? Um, and then romantic attraction, it kind of makes sense when you talk about it intuitively, you know, oh, I have a crush on someone and I want to date them. And that's where romantic orientation comes in, right? It's you basically swap out the sexual part of, you know, you have heteros- heteroromantic, biromantic, panromantic, and so on. But it gets really confusing when people are like, okay, so if there's no sexual desire involved, and especially if you might be actually averse to having sex with someone, how is that romantic attraction sort of platonic attraction? Because the way that we really divide the two is by, you know, I want to have sex with someone, therefore it's romantic. I don't want to have sex with someone, therefore it is platonic. And I think ACEs really complicate that. And the truth is, I've asked so many people um, who are aromantic or who do experience romantic attraction, you know, how do you tell the difference? And nobody really has a great answer. In social science, there's all these claims of, you know, what makes romantic relationships unique, things like infatuation and becoming possessive and really caring about them. But people are always like, well, you can be infatuated with your friends. You can be possessive mm-hmm. of your friends. Everything that you supposedly distinguishes romantic relationships, you can find in platonic places too. So it's not, I'm not saying that they're actually exactly the same. I'm sure that, you know, many, many things, really small things differentiate them. But it's like we think about platonic romantic attraction as these mutually exclusive things, right? It's either one or the other, but it's actually very blurry and there's a lot of overlap. And so much, so much of it comes from the way that we treat relationships. You know, oftentimes I talk to people who say, I don't think I actually want a romantic relationship. I just want like that social role, like a best friend will be with me forever and it doesn't even have to feel platonic, but I just want that validation. I want that status and all the things that romantic relationships are supposed to give you in this social sense. Like to me, the idea of, of romantic attraction devoid of sexual attraction makes sense because I feel like I, I've experienced that you know, with one person in particular where like the friendship was just at a different level. There was like a level of possessiveness. There was like a level of like closeness um, and like uh, that sense of like, this feels different than how it feels with everybody else, but it it lacked the the sexual component. So I don't know. I, I think that like if people take the time to like really examine it or look at what a romantic relationship is like on a day to day basis, people aren't having sex 24 seven. Yeah, exactly. I also think there's there's something to the stigma of like if you're just best friends and you live together and you decide to be a couple and you raise a child together, you whatever. But like we give this this heightened status to 
like a romantic partner or a sexual partner where it's like, that's your plus one to the wedding or that, or, you know, you have to take these milestones. Like you can't just get married to be on each other's insurance or certain things like that, where, you know, you talk in the book a bit about breaking down the importance of romantic relationships versus platonic life partnerships or whatever in, in society, but like it's blocked pretty much at every turn, right? Yeah. Every turn in marriage, like you said, you can, you can get, you can marry a stranger and give them your health insurance, but you can't give health insurance as far as I know to a parent, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. if your romantic partner dies, of course you can get bereavement leave, but if your best friend dies, maybe you'll still get it, but there's going to be, you know, some raised eyebrows about it. Um, when I go to, um, you know, when I go to weddings, if I want to have a just, quote, just a friend at the plus one, I always feel a little awkward about it. And, you know, I'll email the host and be like, is this okay? Whereas I would feel totally fine bringing a romantic partner to the plus one. In all these big and little ways, um, we really have just been conditioned to see romance as so much more deserving, even at the level of, you know, legal rights. And do you think that aces are able to be in romantic relationships with people who do have sexual desire or what, you know, what does it look like if you do want a life partner? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is harder in many ways. I think that many aces do end up trying to date allos. You know, there's ace dating websites and, you know, if that works out, that's great. But of course, as anyone knows, sexual orientation is not the most important thing in compatibility, right? So many other things are important. But, you know, for the last chapter, I interviewed a lot of people who are in ace-allo relationships, and it is tough, and it, re- and it requires so much thinking about the role of sex in relationships and people's needs and wants and who deserves what. Um, you know, so often, it's easy to talk about sex. It's easy to be like, okay, we're not having enough sex. It's much harder to be like, we're not having enough sex, and therefore, you know, I feel insecure, therefore, I feel like I'm unattractive, you know, it's sex is bound up in all of these personal issues about your own value and all these issues. You know, maybe sex is your one of your love languages or something. So it really requires so much more talking and patience. Some people are in open relationships. Some people are not in open relationships and they are just constantly in dialogue. And some people, honestly, they just say sex is a problem for us. We fight about it a lot. It's a source of strain in our relationship, but it's the same to them as many other sources of strain. That's something I think about a lot. You know, every relationship, like you're talking about who is going to take care of your elderly parents. You know, how are you going to deal with money? How are you going to deal with kids? But that feels like something that is expected almost. I feel like people kind of, you know, accept that these are parts of the strain, whereas there seems to be something embarrassing about, you know, sex being a source of tension. It seems like we almost think that we have to have wonderful sex all the time or this relationship is bad or this relationship is going to be bad. And so there needs to be a lot of unpacking of that in relationships between people who are ace and aloe. Yeah, it's seen as sad. It's like, oh, they're 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 not having sex anymore. Like it's this very like thing. I mean, also, even if you if you don't want to have a relationship, like I was blown away by the thing of, of about the opinion for same sex marriage saying like like we don't want to condemn gay people to live in loneliness. And people were like, oh, my God, we love it. Love is love. But like, can you talk about asexual people who just don't want partners? Yeah. And I think it can be rough because uh, as one person told me, it felt like one step further from normal. And I think there's that bias sometimes mm-hmm. even in the ace community where it's like, oh, aces who want partners, you know, they have their struggle in finding them. But at least, 
you know, they're moral people. They need love too. They can experience love too and be part of belonging. Whereas there's this idea that if you're a romantic, there's something wrong with you. Like you're defective. You can't understand humans. You're cold. And when you really think about that, it's very messed up, you know, because just because you don't experience romantic attraction doesn't mean you don't love your parents or your friends. So it just is implying that if there's this one kind of feeling that you don't feel, even if you are a kind and generous person, you're cold and bad. And I think these are so many stereotypes, like stereotypes of being sociopathic, of being alien, of not quite being normal. And that's something that people who are aromantic really struggle with. And just like jumping back to like this idea of like, there's going to be struggles in your relationship, no matter what, I think, you know, in even in relationships where both people are allo, they can often have different sex drives. And that can cause lots of tension. You know, it's not like everyone in the relationship is completely matched up on that. So it's often a common issue. And I think it, it is right to like, look at like, well, what is the bigger picture? What is your bigger compatibilities? Right. It's so common. You know, it's not an ace issue. I think it's very rare that two people in any relationship will forever have the perfectly matched sex drive, right? But I think that another issue is that there really is inequality in relationships when it comes to um, sexual desire, because there's always this idea, not always, there's frequently this idea that the lower desire partner is the one who's broken, who has to fix it, who has to take drugs or buy vibrators or whatever. Um, it's like their rights, their desire to not have sex doesn't matter as much as the desire of the person who does want to have sex. And that doesn't even morally make sense. That doesn't even logically make sense. There's two people in the relationship. Both people should have equal weight. But it's just so hard for people to think beyond the fact that lower desire means that you're broken and you have to fix it. Yeah, the idea that like someone with a lot of sexual desire has the spice of life. They have passion. They have all this stuff. And like the idea of being like, well, you your partner has lower sex drive, so you should take something to suppress your sex drive. Then that's seen as like, well, no, I liked this thing from Emily Nagoski about enthusiastic, willing, unwilling and coerced consent, because I like the idea of how asexuality can teach all of us about consent and like the different, you know, the difference between like the black and white of no means no and yes means yes. Yeah, absolutely. So no means no and yes means yes are pretty common. And there's problems with both. You know, no means no kind of implies that it's yes unless you're yelling no, which is not great. And yes means yes. That gets into this concept of enthusiastic consent, which of course is very well-meaning. It's like, you know, have sex when it's, I want it for me. But the problem with aces is that many times aces just don't want it for me. You know, no matter what, we're not going to be horny and, you know, doing it for us. So instead Mm -hmm. of having this consent, no consent binary, Emily really has, um, these levels to it and the top two levels that I think are interesting are enthusiastic consent and that's the you know I'm horny let's do it this is what I want and the second one is willing consent which is like I'm not um you know I don't love this for me but I love I love you it's not going to harm me I think I'm going to get something out of it even if it's not you know an orgasm you know it's it's different but it's still consent and I think thinking about shades of consent is so important because if you make enthusiastic consent the gold standard the only standard that's basically implying that aces can't consent which is not true and is 
is messed up. So thinking about, you know, all the different factors that go into consent and how sexual attraction um, for yourself doesn't have to be the only one or the most important one, I think really adds something to the conversation. Yeah, that you you want to be close to your partner. You have you talk about being like the thrill of being sexually desired by someone else that like that is what causes you to consent and not just the like, I need a fuck right now or whatever. Yeah, or you're bored or you're sad. You know, there's so many reasons that don't have to do with, you know, sexual desire or you love your partner and you want to make them happy. And I think that's fine, too. You know, there's a difference between I'm not horny, but I love you and let's have sex versus I'm not horny, but you're just pestering me. So I'm going to give in. You know, it's there's Mm -hmm. this big spectrum. So if someone was like younger or even just like wherever they are on their journey and they, they're starting to suspect that they are asexual, like what advice would you give them? I think, I think it's important to be fluid. I think people are going to hear, hear a lot the whole, you know, oh, you haven't met the right person yet. Oh, this is just, um, you're just shy. Oh, you just need better social skills or something. And, you know, maybe be open to that, but also be open to the fact that you're ace. You know, either could be true. So, other people don't necessarily know better than you. If you feel curious, if you want to explore, definitely go for that. But there's no reason that they know who you are. And there's no reason that you can't be ace. And there's nothing wrong with being ace. And in fact, I think there's many good things about being ace. It helps you see the world in a different way. So it's like, whatever you are, like, just be patient. You can find it. But don't let other people, don't give your power of, you know, defining yourself to other people. How how have you told potential partners about this? Like, what is the right way to kind of broach the subject? Um, it's funny because I, um, in, in my first relationship, I just didn't know I was ace. In my second relationship, I was kind of exploring asexuality, but then we broke up for reasons unrelated to asexuality. And then in my current relationship, I we were really good friends for a long time. So we already knew that I was asexual. Um, so there wasn't really that kind of discussion. But I feel like, if, you know, if I were to date someone now, I think this isn't necessarily something that I would bring up on the first date. So I suppose if they Google me, it's pretty much out there. But I think that, you know, once you get to the point in the the relationship where you might be talking about sexual activity, I really think it's just kind of sitting down and having an honest um, conversation with them and saying, you know, here's my boundaries, but here's what I want. Here's my compromise, which is pretty similar to most other awkward early relationship conversations, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I can see a situation of being like, well, I don't know if I'm having sex with you. I need you to be like not wanting to feel like you're crossing a boundary or that you're like doing something that the other person doesn't want. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know this is a boring answer, but it really just has to be a lot of, uh, you know, discussion beforehand. But also both people need to just really pay attention, you know, when they're actually having sex or whatnot really pay attention to cues. You know, there's so consent isn't just about saying yes at the beginning and then you never think about consent again. Like people change their minds all the time. They decide they don't want something or they do want something that Mm -hmm. they didn't want. So it's really about wanting at every moment um, a sense of how comfortable the other person is and paying attention. And it's not foolproof, but I think that's the best way to approach it for basically anyone, regardless of whether they're ace or not. And when you're talking about sex, I mean, is it is it people feeling this way towards all physical intimacy or is there, again, like a range where maybe some people enjoy like kissing but don't like penetration? Um, 
Is it a spectrum there as well? Yeah, there's definitely a spectrum. Some people don't like touch. Um, some people are okay with everything um, before penetration. So there's a really wide range of experiences. I think there's ways to be intimate. I think we put too much pressure on penetration in general. And I think there's so many ways to be intimate that are you're not even thinking about like laying and cuddling and kissing and back rubs and all that kind of stuff that I think a lot of people are like, well, I have to do sex with this person in order to get the parts that I enjoy. <laughs> I, like I hate that for them. Yeah. And it's just not true, right? It's totally possible to have, you know, penetrative sex and it feels deadening inside. And it's also possible to have like a really intimate, you know, back rub or kiss or whatever. So it's not like this really linear line, but people often act like it is. Can you just briefly touch on like the idea of asexuality not being feminist and also like the idea of certain only certain people being asexual, like frigid, conservative, uh, you know, it doesn't how it doesn't sort of mesh with liberalism? Yeah. So I think that there's this really important well-meaning message, which is that women are shamed um, into not accessing their desires and they're shamed by double standards and, you know, slut shaming exists and all of that is true. But I think that's kind of mutated into this idea that the only reason that a woman would not enjoy sex is because she's, you know, a tool of the patriarchy or she's self-repressed herself and needs to like do that work. And I think that that does a disservice to a lot of people, not just ace people, anyone who isn't super horny. You're always like, oh, um, am I not in touch with my internal desires? Have I thrown off the chains of oppression? And in pop culture, I think often there's really this sense that, you know, the if you have a lot of sex, if you use men, um, if you're horny, then you're bright and bold and fun and feminist. And then there's this opposite archetype where it's like you're you're a wallflower and you're very chaste and you're very conservative and you're probably blonde. You know, there's all these archetypes. And I want to be clear that, you know, the world is a big place. And of course, you know, sex shaming and all of that still goes on. But there's all of these kind of messages. And in the end, the message is kind of like, if you are asexual, then you're not a real feminist. Then if you don't mm. love sex, then maybe you're a conservative and maybe you're a prude, maybe you're backwards. And I think that just takes away from, first of all, I think it just puts more pressure on women and it provides more rules for how women should be. But also I think that it's important for women to organize. And I don't think you want to exclude people um, for reasons like this. I think sexual variation exists. And I think it's, of course, people can be asexual and that doesn't have to do anything with their politics. Thank you so much. I love yeah, that. Thank you. This I uh, I feel like I learned stuff. I'm sure everyone listening has learned stuff. And would you like to play a game show? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a, a couple of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want, but then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and then I just decide if I like your answer. Our first game is called Are You a Terrible Parent? You suspect your 12-year-old has a crush on your neighbor, also 12. So you conspire with the neighbor's mom to all go to Disneyland for the day. You then leave the two kids alone to explore the park and get to know each other better. Your child comes back crying because they confessed feelings for the neighbor and the neighbor laughed in their face. Are you a terrible parent? You all have to ride home together in the same car. Angela? Well, my first question is, is this happening during COVID? Are we going to Disneyland during COVID? 
This is important. Great question. No, no. Then you're clearly a terrible parent. This right. Is, this is a brighter time. The virus, the, the vaccine has arrived. Okay. You know, I'm going to say no. It's a little bit interfering too much in your child's life, but, you know, your child will survive. They've learned an important lesson, possibly, and I kind of like the idea of trolling your kids. <laughs> like, does the other parent know this is like a date, like a setup? Yeah, like the two of you have been conspiring but not telling the kids. So they didn't bother to find out if their kid liked my kid? Correct. Well, they're a terrible parent then. <laughs> okay, I'm you're a right. Great parent and they Yeah, they suck. You're right. These are the important right. questions. You're right. These are the ethical questions. We're mad at them. Yeah, and they're Republicans. Ah, a twist. <laughs> yeah, so they suck. Well, good. I'm glad their kid doesn't like my kid. We're moving. We're moving houses and we're never coming back. <laughs> Okay, our next game. Would you lie or tell the truth? You're on a work trip with a coworker, and to save money, they put you in one room with double beds. For some reason, the person at the front desk of the hotel assumes you are a couple and upgrades you to a really nice suite with one bed. They ask how long the two of you have been married. Would you lie or tell the truth? There is no couch in the suite. You would have to share the bed, but you get free breakfast included. Ooh, mm. I love I love free breakfast. I think mm. I would tell the truth. Uh, well, they, are they going to take back the sweet? Yes. Is my coworker good looking? Yeah, they're they're average. Hmm. Am I single? Uh, yes. Um, I I would I would lie. I would say we've been married for um five years. Angela? You know, I would tell the truth. I think I just feel like I could not get that image out of my brain. And if I had to continue working with this person, then it would just degrade the quality of my work life for as long as I stayed at that company. So in the interest of saving my future self, I'd have to tell the truth. Unfortunately, the person behind the desk was your soulmate. So by saying that you were at a couple, you then get to end up with the soulmate. And Gabby, you just get a free breakfast. You know what? I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm fine. Do you ever do you uh, do you ever eventually meet your soulmate again or no? No. That so was your you one chance. Out. That was your one chance. Angela is now with her soulmate and you just had a free breakfast. But if they're your soulmate, wouldn't they find a way to be together anyway? No? Is this what are the No. Okay. That's not how it works. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So soulmate means basically nothing. Why would you be entitled to your soulmate just because they exist hmm you're right that's true thank you you're right we're and, not entitled and, to anything and we learned people are fully are are fully fine so maybe i'm just fine and i love breakfast and that's it breakfast mm -hmm. is yeah, your soulmate. you still have a happy life breakfast is my soulmate thank you so much angela <laughs> you are correct <laughs> okay our final game are you an asshole while at a friend's house party, you start to talk to your friend's aunt. Dating and relationships come up and you share that you are asexual. They shake their head and say you are just confused. Asexuality doesn't exist. Later, you are the only one who overhears that same woman shouting that she has gotten locked in the bathroom. Instead of helping her, you just return to the party. Are you an asshole? She ends up being stuck in there for five hours with a clogged toilet. <laughs> Does anything happen oh to her? Like, is she, like, other than no. the unpleasant... Okay, so she... Hmm. She's not injured or anything. Hmm. Here's what I would do. I would write down asexuality is valid. I would slide it under the door. 
And then I would be like, think about this for five hours. And then I would leave. I'd want to do a version of that where it was like, like a ransom, like admit asexuality is valid and I will let you out of this bathroom. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Take a picture with today's newspaper and write asexuality is valid on your hand and then I'll let you out. Yeah. That seems like a good compromise. These are very good plans. Yeah. 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 Also, just said like slide your book under the door. That's what I was thinking. If it fits, slide Angela's yeah. book under the door. You can come out when you finish this. Yeah, and give me a book report. Yeah, this sounds good to me. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and you're helping other asexual people not have to deal with this person. So in the way, you're a hero, an educator, an educator, yeah. and yeah. a hero. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on this show. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, my website, AngelaChen.org, or Twitter, Chenjela. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about how to reframe your thoughts. Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X X X X X X. Beautiful. X. Oh, sorry. I apologize for interrupting. <laughs> um, so this week I wanted to talk reframing your thoughts, which is one of the main components of cognitive behavioral therapy. So obviously I'm uh, on a real kick with this. I think not everybody is able to access therapy and not everybody is able to maintain it, you know, and this is kind of a fun thing that you can work on by yourself. So I thought we could talk about it. One thing we do provide here at Just Between Us is free therapy from someone who's literally in therapy school. So you can just, you can get your tidbits right here for free, baby. We are providing a service. Allison is an expert. I'm just arrogant. Let's do this. We really can't say that or or they'll come after me because I'm not a licensed professional. (laughs) Will they really? Okay, okay. So she's saying she's not licensed. So this is, this is, uh, this is free just, because just none of us regular thoughts regular and opinions. Talking. Yeah. You're right. I'm sorry. This is regular talking. Just my, uh, my personal opinions that are that are not backed up by not, any licensing. Not a doctor. So <laughs> okay, so to what is reframing your thoughts? So reframing your thoughts is basically like acknowledging that certain ways that you think about the world are not helpful to you um and are harmful, right? So like an example is to talk about like body image, like if I if I look at myself and I go, oh my God, I'm so much fatter than I was a couple years ago. What's wrong with me? Why have I gained this weight? Mm-hmm. And then reframing the thought is, I'm older now, people's metabolisms change over time and it's actually really normal that I'm not the same weight that I was in my 20s. And like even reframing your thoughts as like, why do we equate weight with like positivity? Why Mm -hmm. do we congratulate people for losing weight? Why do we assume these certain beauty standards and like going deeper than just like the one thought that you initially have? Yeah. And or like, okay, so let's say you make a mistake, like, you know, you you mess up, right? And you're like, your immediate thought is, oh my God, I'm an awful idiot piece of shit. How dare Mm -hmm. I mess up? And then the reframing is people mess up all the time. I'm sure Mm -hmm. the person that I messed up in front of messes up as well 
mm-hmm. and and will there be any true repercussions from this mess up? No. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I know everybody sort of has these thoughts, but like, are you talking about specifically people with anxiety, depression, OCD, like that kind of stuff that like your brain sort of uh, beats beats you up for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that probably people struggling with that stuff, there's going to be more thoughts that they need to reframe. But I think that mm-hmm. everybody has thoughts that they can reframe. You know, like just this idea of like, I need to have a a house and uh and this much money in my bank account by 30. Right. Or else I'm I'm bad. bad. Right. And thinking about, okay, why do I need that? Is there any proof or evidence that that is what determines if someone is a good or bad person? No. Yeah. Or just like you can want it. But if it doesn't happen, it's not like, well, if it doesn't happen, it says something about me and the type of person I am and my morality and my worth. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm garbage. What is some stuff that you've been working on reframing? I've really worked hard on like, I don't need everyone to like me. Mm -hmm. One thing I did that I started doing was if someone didn't like my comic book or if someone didn't like this podcast, I would say, well, you know, I don't like every podcast I listen to. I don't like every book I read, but I never am like, oh, the author should die. Like, I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm like, I, you listen, I try listening to tons of podcasts. Some stick, some don't. I try listen, I try reading tons of books. Some I love, some I just finish or some I put away. Like it's, it's not a, a moratorium on the person who made it or the person who, like, it's just not my taste. And if it's popular, it's someone else's taste. Or if, someone else likes it. Yeah, that's their taste. Tons of things had to happen leading up to this moment where they said, I like this book. (laughs) So and different things happened to me to make me go, I don't like this book. And that's fine. So like I've taken that into my own work where I'm like, if someone doesn't like what I'm doing, that's their prerogative. Like I don't need to win that specific person over and convince them that like my movie is a good movie. Like Whatever. Like, I I don't like everything that I consume, so I can't assume that everybody is going to like the stuff I make. And if it reaches the people that love it, that's all I can control. Yeah. And also, just like, I think a lot of times around, like, relationships, there's a lot of, like, reframing that needs to be done. You know, like, Mm -hmm. this expectation of, like, if I'm not obsessed with them 100% of the time, then it's not real love. Yeah. And like, yeah. like, it has to feel the exact same that it felt the first two weeks that we were dating. But in- right. instead being like relationships change, the, of course, the feelings that we have for each other are going to ebb and flow. It's mm-hmm. it is it is normal for there to be a progression in the relationship and for it not to be exactly the same. Right. Um, and that does not reflect whether or not this relationship is good or valid. Yeah. I also like similar kind of to what Angela was talking about. I also have had to, for polyamory, had to mm-hmm. reframe where when I was in my 20s, I was like, if I am able to fuck people without feeling anything for them, then I have to extend that same ability to the person I'm with. Like, if they say that they that they can do it, I can't go, well, I can do that, but they must be in love with this person. I've really um, come to be like, people are complex. Yeah. Like, you know, even my my dad is a complicated figure. Mm-hmm. He was he like an alcoholic who did bad things. Yeah. Is he that right now? And does he um, I don't know. You know, like I don't I'm like, well, people are complex. He grew up in this certain household. Like it, I think a lot of reframing has has been getting rid of black and white thinking 
and thinking of people as good or bad and just being like, this person is doing things that I don't agree with. I'm sure they have their reason. I don't know. Like, okay. So there was that thread about Ellen DeGeneres, right? Mm-hmm. It was talking about like people giving their stories for how Ellen is, was like a monster to work with. And then one person wrote, wrote to that and was like, uh, I actually like worked with Ellen and she was delightful. And I saw her give a hundred dollars to a homeless man one time. Mal was reading that to me and I was like, yeah, people are complex. Like you want to go, you want to live your life being like, yeah, this person's a monster or like everything this person's ever done is, is bad. But sometimes bad people do good things. Yeah, but I also think sometimes there's this belief that if you are good enough, if you do the right thing, then you can change someone. Oh, no, no, I no. I think that there's certain people where the reframing sometimes that is helpful is just literally being like, this is the way that this person is. Yeah. I cannot change them. Yeah. Because, yeah. because then you take yourself out of like constantly trying, constantly being disappointed, constantly getting mm-hmm. your hopes up and then it not happening. So sometimes it is good to just be like, my boss will never act appropriately. Or like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like my, yeah, my yeah, boss yeah, yeah. will never treat me with the respect that I deserve. I'm going to make myself bonkers trying. Exactly. Um, so it's a real mix, you know? And also as things go on and as your life changes, you might keep reframing things. It doesn't mean that like your first reframe is going to be perfect and last forever. But I just, I really urge you to like um, look into I kind of I initially almost wanted the conversation to be about like positive um, Mm self-talk and that like led me into reframing because I think the way to accomplish positive self-talk is is through reframing of how you view yourself and how you view the world. Um, And so just like knowing that like, okay, I'm not uh, no one is perfect. I did my best. Like, yeah. Or like instead of framing it as like what you don't have or mm-hmm. focusing on what you lack or what you haven't accomplished, reframing it with like, what have I accomplished? What do I have? What is good? And just that like this past does not dictate the future. Just because yeah. this is what happened in the past does not mean that I will not be able to finish my degree, get that mm-hmm. job, do what I am aspiring to do. Mm-hmm. And also knowing that like whenever you're, saying things like never, this will never Mm -hmm. happen. I'll never get this. I'll never get that. Like knowing like I am not capable of predicting the future. Right. You know, I, I think too, I've had a lot of reframing in terms of what the media or what I grew up thinking was like the ways that justice could be served. Mm -hmm. So like I've been thinking a lot about restorative justice and about abolishing the prison system and what could be done instead And I read a lot of stuff about victims wanting to just like meet with the the person that did whatever to them, like Mm -hmm. families wanting to meet with the person who like murdered their mom or something. And like I had been taught so much like, you know, black or white sort of like, well, someone does something bad, they go to jail. And I've really been retraining my thoughts to be like, what what would best serve the victims? What would best serve the community? Like. What what is actually restorative? Um, it's been a good exercise in changing my thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know it's something that you can do alone by yourself. It can be helpful potentially to like journal about it. So mm-hmm. sort of like write down these things that you believe to be true, and then and then challenge yourself and look at other possibilities of that truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of like my mom 
hates me versus is my mom really stressed out? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. What, what are the other possibilities of what's going on can be really helpful. And like the narrative that it's not about you. Mm-hmm. Like someone not texting me back is not about me. Right. Like I don't I never now jump to like this person hates me. Mm-hmm. I'm always just like, ah, they must have such a busy week or, you know, like I think not making everything a slight on you or about you mm-hmm. because I guarantee you and I'm sorry to say, but people are not thinking about you as much as you b- want them to. <laughs> <laughs> Tamika, do you want to come in and share your thoughts? Yeah, I feel like it's so easy these days with COVID. Everything that's going on in the world is just so easy to feel very Mm -hmm. powerless. And I really feel like reframing your thoughts can just change the way you look at things when you're like feeling maybe trapped in your space. You can look at it as as best you possibly can under the circumstances because negative thinking really will only make your situation feel Mm -hmm. worse. I I, I hate to be like, Think positively or whatever, um, especially as someone whose father believes that uh, he <laughs> he thought positively and cured his own cancer. But I do think it it has helped me personally not dwell on the past and not dwell on failures. And uh, it has helped me personally to at least be like, uh, at least I have some like, OK, so I have my dog. Or I have something like mm-hmm. just just not like deluding yourself, but just being like, what do I, what can I actually see as evidence around me that is positive? Even if it's like Bob the drag queen, who's like a really amazing drag performer, talks about how if he feels like shit, he'll be like he'll try to find one thing. So he'll be like, I have a really nice tooth. Wow, that's an awesome tooth. I love this tooth <laughs> of mine. And then he builds from there, like back his confidence. Right. And I was like, I love that. And it's not a denial of the fact that, you know, there is horrible situations and things are unjust and there is a lot of bad things going on in the world. It's mostly you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it so that, like, your experience of this world can be as good as possible despite Mm -hmm. the external circumstances. And it doesn't mean that you accept the external circumstances or you stop fighting for justice or better situations or, you know, better care for your parent or sibling or, you know, whatever it is that you need. But it lets you live in your brain a little bit better. Right. Because you're you're yourself always. And so you want that relationship with yourself to be as healthy and positive as possible. I don't think it helps to be. I I have a friend who just reached out to be friends again. And I was like, she's so negative. Like it was really harsh in my mellow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What do we rate the episode? I rate it um, five out of five uh, Facebook messages from your coworker. Mmm. I'll rate it six out of six uh, aces. I went ah! real. I went real basic. I rated forty out of fifty states. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Boop, bow, bow, bow. What bow, a bow, sick bow, bow. burn, Tamika. Tamika, <laughs> Tamika hopped on to let us know that Texas is in fact not the biggest state. <laughs> and just further proved um, how Allison and I are victims of the United States education system. Uh, I'm I'm just a moron. Um, <laughs> 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 that 
They really tried with me. It didn't work oh. out. Oh. Oh, my God. Uh, what did we learn? So much. Oh, my God. When Angela's book comes out you guys in September, you guys have to get it. I read an advanced copy. It's amazing. It made me think so much about sexuality. It was about so much more than asexuality. Yeah, I think I definitely learned about um, what sexual desire is and how that's different than, like, aesthetic desire. And mm-hmm. I, I've thought about it before, but I'd never heard it said so, like, explicitly and clearly. Yeah. It's something that I think... There's no shame in exploring if you've related to anything that Angela said. Totally. Okay. And then just to wrap things up, we're going to read some listener comments because as you guys probably know, we're coming up on that scary time of will they renew us? Will they not? Dump, dump, dump. (laughs) So we need those reviews. We need comments. We need you to share the show. And so for some incentive, we're going to read our favorite comments on the air so that maybe you could be read on the air. And I say on the air as if this was just an old timey radio station. Okay, well, see here, I'm going to listen to this listener comment, okay? (laughs) Okay, this one's from Ola Lola. Okay, I'm going to stop doing the voice. I needed this so much. I'm obsessed with this podcast. I've listened to all the episodes at least twice, and in some cases, much more, like the episode with Ella Dawson. The interviews are always super interesting and entertaining. The topic section explores both universal and peculiar themes, and the advice session is just so useful. The format is great. Allison and Gabby are great, and so is their chemistry. I love to put it on while I'm driving or cooking, and imagine how I would reply to them and what I would say in their position. I just love it. Keep it going, please. I need this. Uh, I'm going to read from Lauren Wally uh, entitled, Oh my God, you cannot cancel this show. (laughs) (laughs) And then the review says, this is the only thing I look forward to anymore. I saw (laughs) Gabby and Allison live last summer and their kindness, humor and inspiration is unparalleled. I love this show. Oh my God. And then Noah 654421, uh, it just wrote, Allison is very funny. That is all. Oh, is that because someone didn't mention you being funny in another one of these? Yes, and I needed the validation. So thank you so much, Noah. A lot of these reviews mention hypotheticals. Honestly, maybe just renew that. We'll take what we can get. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to Angela Chen for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Five stars! Leave a review! Allison is funny! Come on! Okay, if you write Allison is funny, then also just write Gabby is hot. Deal. Deal. Stitcher.